0: Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Today we're bringing you a conversation from Fidelity Canada's Vision 2024 event in Toronto. Vision offers insights from our portfolio managers and investment experts and provides their comments on the current market environment, Fidelity's investment process, and our global research network operation. The following conversation is with Fidelity Portfolio Managers Mark Schmel, Dan DuPont, and Hugo Lavallee. They discuss the Global Equity Plus Fund and where they are seeing opportunities in 2024. This conversation was recorded on January 31st, 2024.
1: That was a good jolt of caffeine, wasn't it? Okay, so Dan, I've known you a long time, Mark a long time, Hugo a long time, Hugo that's your music. That's
2: my music. Tell us about it. <laughs> well, yeah, uh, I, I won the uh, rock paper scissor contest between the three of us. So. You don't like uh, Brazilian all woman death metal bands, so. I do now. Yeah, there um, you go. This is, uh, as Alex said,
1: the first time we've had all three of these gentlemen on stage. We've got an hour. Please do send in your questions. I think it could get quite rousing. Uh, Dan asked a few weeks ago when we were pulling this together if there's a five-second delay, can't do that when we're live, so we won't be doing that. So we'll see where this goes. But I first want to ask, there's a sticky jar of jam beside you, Hugo. What's that all about?
2: So um, this started in 2009. Uh, Initially, it was Mark and I, and then uh, Dan joined the contest. So every year, based on the best performance of the previous year, so 23, we have a little jar of jam uh, that it's uh, a place that we liked in in Maine. Mm-hmm. Now this is 15 years old. Might be nuclear at this point. Uh, it's pretty <laughs> sticky. It sticks to everything. And uh, so I'm uh, I'm like the Stanley Cup uh, handler this year. So I brought it to Toronto. It was sitting on I presented it to Dan. It was sitting on his uh, his desk for 2022. And so,
3: uh, here's hoping for a recession this year so that I can get this star back, but Mark, <laughs> congratulations. Thank you. Oh, it is sticky. Oh my God. Good so, to have you
1: back. Mark, uh, good luck getting that across the border when you return to San Francisco. Uh, we should probably get some toast over here. Um, that, uh, I think that's a fun way to kick things off. We should talk in detail about Global Equity Plus as far as the makeup. And of course, it's global innovators, it's Greater Canada, and it's Canadian large cap with a small sleeve, 10% of global value longshore as well. All of that rolled in uh, to one uh, fund code, which is one line on the statement, which is, which is pretty wonderful. I think that it's probably best that we remind everybody about each of your styles. Dan, you're sitting close to me. You uh, like to win by not losing. Uh, you are someone who loves to mitigate risk. Why don't you remind everybody about what Dan DuPont is all about and Canadian large cap in particular?
3: Yeah, so uh, like you said, 23% of the fund is in large cap, 10% is in global value long short. The process for me has always been the same and it's it hasn't changed across mandates, whether it's Canada-centric like Canadian large cap fund that it needs to be over 50% in Canada or North Star where I can go global or in global value long short where I can go global and short as well. It's Preserving capital when, when there's a downdraft in the market, and taking advantage of that to um, you know to, to to outperform over medium to long term with less volatility, mm-hmm. hopefully than than average. So it's it's just basically that it's a slightly concentrated portfolio, 30, 40, 50 names tops. Um, whether it's the long short fund, obviously there's going to be a few more names there, but you know, large cap is is fairly concentrated. And you'll manage cash in there as well. Yeah, so that, that's one thing I do a little bit differently. I will do some arbitrage. I will have some cash, and I will have things that are a little bit unorthodox. And I've been doing that from the beginning, so I'm getting um, better and better every year, hopefully. But I've been involved with you know over 400 arbitrage deals. Um, so that's that's the angle that I bring to this to this fund. It's to preserve capital when the market gets a bit more volatile, for sure.
1: You've been at the firm since 2001.
3: What inspired
1: you? Was it before Fidelity? Was it after you joined Fidelity? What inspired the management style that you have today?
3: That's a good question. I think it was. In, I was intrinsically like that, um, and I showed that through my first sector as an analyst. I was covering Staples, and I think they tried to destabilize me and they gave me gold and see if I could survive as kind of a value guy to to cover that. Um, I survived. Right, I, I think that's why you're the investor you are. <laughs> it was that gold sector, um, and then banks, and so it just kind of. Um, it was more of a value style. You know, you read a whole lot about, you know, value investors and Warren Buffett, et cetera. But over time, I just honed it more as my own in terms of, you know, pres- having less of that volatility tax. That's my style. It's just not having the drawdowns when the market corrects. And then um, the rebounds don't need to be that big for you to do well over time. And when you worked at
1: Fidelity in the early days, it was in Boston.
3: Team Canada was based in Boston.
1: How did you absorb from the... The Will Danoffs of, of the firm and others that were
3: around you. Well, I was I was also you know interacting with with these two fellows playing ball hockey on, on Sunday mornings. Um, but yeah, it was fun to be in, in Boston. Frankly, to to be interacting. I mean, you know, my I think Mark would have talked to uh, and you go as well would have talked to Will a bit more. I would have talked to Joel a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, when I was named on Northstar in 2011, it was really a dream come true to mm-hmm. co manage a fund with with an industry legend like him. But yeah. It was interacting with PMs. It was also going to meetings. You know, if a, if a merger was announced on Sunday, the first meeting that these two companies had was in Boston at, at 9 a.m. on Monday morning. Mm-hmm. So as a young analyst, it's fun to go in the room and just understand what- the All access. About. Yeah.
1: yeah. Um, and Hugo, you started it around 2002 at Fidelity. You are Mr. Contrarian. you invest against the grain. Can you tell everybody about your style, how it came to be? and um, how you're running Canadian uh, or Greater Canada right now?
2: Yeah, I think, so for me, I don't believe in that um, a good company with a good story uh, that has a good management team uh, that trades at a good multiple, I don't think it exists. I think it's very dust. I think it's it's fake. And I think that's why so many uh, middle-of-the-road managers underperform. As a general comment, um, they feel, the feel good at night, uh, you know, sleep well at night um, story is, uh, you know, the market's pretty efficient. So it'll, it'll bump up the multiple to take away some of the future returns. So I think you have to do something different to outperform. And I think all three of us are different silos that do something different. So for me, it's trying to find the great businesses, but buy them in the hole buy them when things are really difficult. And I think people don't always understand how difficult it needs to be. Um, There was something that blew up this week and I had like four different people internally pitching me that stock and I'm like, the fact that all four of you are pitching me that stock, it means it's not for me. So, you know, you have to really, it's so bad that people believe that the business has changed. And in that moment, um, you're dealing with uncertainty, uh, and you're just trying to react quickly with imperfect information than in the competition. I'm a big proponent of uh, one of Napoleon's maxim: uh, activity, activity, vitesse, which is basically to you know to work with intensity all the time to have a knowledge base. Because in those really weird moments like COVID or when a company blows up, you can move faster than the enemy and you know and circle the competition because um, you're dealing with imperfect information and you're just trying to move faster than others. And, and that's really how I try to do it. And for me, to answer your other question, for me, my first year at Fidelity was a formative year. I joined at Fidelity. I thought maybe I was a value manager. I wasn't sure. I was just honestly just happy to be there um, and to be able to, to go to, to Boston. It was a difficult process for me to get at Fidelity. I got rejected twice before I was hired. So I was just like really happy to be there. And so I joined in '02, and I was giving the tech sector and it was completely washed out right by the fall of '02. And then to see stocks that were n- literally net nets, right? There, there was a company called Tundra, a semiconductor company that traded at a buck 15, they had a buck 50 of cash per share. And to see a company like that then hit a, a product cycle and the stock multiplied by 30 was kind of formative of, Hey, the, the market doesn't know either. So you can sometimes buy cheap stocks and they can re-rate and that kind of really helped me with my stuff. I forgot about that.
1: You were rejected twice, right. but you kept coming back and I'm glad we got you because you've had great success. Why did you keep
2: coming back? What, to Fidelity? Well, they called me back though. For the, the, third, for the third time. <laughs> yeah. Well, the last time, yeah. So it's a little bit of a long story, but basically you know, I you applied know. against Dan, Dan got the job. I went back to McGill for a year um, I got a job in the industry. I worked for Gabelli Asset Management in Ryan, New York. Different times, you know, go to. Go, I got my own visa at the border. It was kind of pre 9 11. It was different times. And, uh, but I stayed in touch. I stayed in touch, obviously, with Dan, but I stayed in touch with Max Lemure. So the following year, when they went back to McGill, they interviewed people. They didn't like anybody. I didn't apply, actually. I got a phone call uh, one night from Dan. He said, Max is going to call you. We're going to bring you back. And then Max said, basically, look, we're we'll bringing you back. If you don't get in, lose our number in uh, basically, you know, third time of session. <laughs> well, that's it, I'm still here. I'm very happy to be on stage in Global Equity Plus. And yeah, we're happy to have you here. Max
1: Lemieux actually spoke to the crowd in Scottsdale back in the fall. Many of you have seen him speak before. He's been with the firm since 1996. And he and Hugo and Dan are in Montreal, the Montreal office, when we said we could move back out of Boston and come home, which is nice. Mark, you've been at the firm since 1999. You're very flexible. You are someone who is a ex- self-professed, but it's true, excellent seller. Talk about everything that came together for you. So I, I am an excellent seller, and I will
4: tell you that the, probably the only person who's ever made money buying stuff I sold is this guy. <laughs> <laughs> because he will actually buy the really good business when I'm just, I've given up on it. Um, in general, it's a bad idea to buy anything I'm selling usually because it's going straight down. Um, and, and I think that a lot, of, a lot of us in our chairs are told not to trade. Trading is bad. Everyone should just never trade and concentrate a portfolio, conviction, be like Buffett. And stylistically, for me, that doesn't work. Like the years I'm down is when I'm working the hardest and selling everything and moving as fast as I can. And Those are usually my best years, even though they don't look like they're very good. And the years where everything's going up, those are easy. You just buy the stuff that's working, and away it goes. But the years that the things are going to hell, that's when I that's when I make that's when I earn my money. Um, so yes, selling is a key component to that. Who was inspiring
1: to you when you had the opportunity to work in the Boston office?
4: Oh, Neil Miller is a legend for me. Um, he was uh, he retired in two thousand seven. He's an investing genius. Um, he and I can complete each other's sentences when we talk. We really sort of approach the market in an oblique sort of fashion, uh, looking at things that are a little bit different than others. And he was really my mentor. And he ran very concentrated, what looked to be very risky, but weren't funds and had tremendous long-term performance. And it was just his willingness to look at anything and then find what was working and buy the hell out of it. And, you know, Get as much, squeeze as much into that lemon as possible and then move on to the next lemon. And I sort of do the same thing.
1: Hugo, I forgot to ask, inspiration for you when you had the opportunity to work in the office in Boston?
2: Well, Will's fund's called the Contra Fund, but Will's not a contrarian yeah. investor as much as I love him. He was very inspirational uh, for me. Um, but, I mean, the, the one person at Fidelity is actually at FIL, which I got to meet later, uh, Anthony Bolton. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wrote a book, against, uh, Investing Against the tide. Um, you know, the focus on margin because I was doing my own thing, but I had never really read about it. But when I remember exactly where I was when I was reading that book thinking, wow, that's exactly how to do it. So, you know, there's all these different managers at Fidelity, you try to, you know, learn from all of them. But for me it was Anthony Bolton, who uh, was our London based PM.
1: The three of you were working in Boston. You played ball hockey together, as you, as you said, evenings or weekends, uh, and you worked amongst your colleagues every week, and you diverged as far as what you were learning and what you were interested in and what you wanted to capitalize on, for lack of a better word, as far as your management style. Did you challenge each other because you thought, well, I'm right, and no, oh, I'm right, and no, oh, I'm right. Like, how did you challenge each other? It probably generated usefulness between all of you.
2: Sorry <laughs> to get yeah. psychological think- <laughs> with you, but. Yeah, I don't. I would maybe frame it a little bit differently. I think for me, what's important is to support each other when we're not doing that super well. I think it's more that. I think we have different styles that re- reflect our personalities, proven styles that work. So look, I'm not going to, you know, I can, I can give you a bunch of stories I bought that, you know, Mark and Dan wouldn't touch and vice versa. So what's the point of debating them? Mm-hmm. I think what's more important is, you know, it can be a grueling business and, to support each other when things are difficult. So I remember, um, it's it's pre-vaccination. So it's like winter of 21, I remember being cold and I'm walking my, you know, we have this curfew in Quebec. So I'm walking my dog, it's past 11.30 and uh, you know, the market's ripping, Mark's absolutely crushing it. Uh, You know, it was kind of tougher time for Dan And I'm like, I should really talk to Dan, right? Because I haven't been seeing him in the office. We're not going in the office, and you know, so it's. I think it's more those moments. Now I realize I called Dan, and he's like, I got this. I'm gonna make so much money, and he was right. So you know, he didn't need my help at all. Um, But I, I think it's more, you know, the the respect of, uh, and that's the beauty about fidelity. We're like an ice cream vendor with all different flavors. So, uh, unless for Global Equity Plus, I guess, it's <laughs> like, what's that triple flavored, uh, what's it called? Neapolitan. Neapolitan. Yeah, yeah, oh, Neapolitan. No. <laughs> uh, ice cream flavor. But apart from that, you want different styles, oh. and that's what we offer. So, I don't think we're big into sitting around a table and debating, because there'd be nothing in the fun. So, you know, so we don't do that. <laughs> uh,
4: I get to with Hugo. Like, we don't, we don't overlap. Like, it's very rare that we would even be interested in the same companies. Like, mm-hmm. So we don't have to have debates. It's like, they will say, I don't, I don't want that one. Or, I'm not even interested. And you go oh, and oh. we don't debate because we just don't even see each other.
2: It's fair,
3: it's
4: fair. Yeah, I love
2: that people. analogy about ice cream as well. That's, that's yeah. great. Well, one of, yeah, so for example, right? So just to give a really clear example. So Chipotle has been a really kind stock for me. At the bottom, Mark told me, I don't know if you remember, but I remember, nobody will ever eat there again, right? <laughs> And it was 300 times earnings, so then it's not going to buy it. So, you know, that's why we don't, like, you know, debate stocks.
1: Mm -hmm. Sounds like you just did. That was uh, probably very therapeutic for all of you. (laughs) Um, The fund Global Equity Plus is a third, a third, a third, each of these gentlemen's funds, but it also has 10% in global value long short, as we were talking about. The interesting thing about global value long short, there's a long list of interesting things about it, but it is an alternative strategy solution that we brought out a few years ago that now is available in this fund that wasn't, that isn't available through every dealer if you buy it individually. But in Global Equity Plus, it's accessible to everyone. Could you explain Global Value Long Short how it came together, why you wanted it, and uh, how it is that you, it really operates on a day-to-day basis?
3: Yeah, so when the alternatives, this new legislation came about that alternative funds would be allowed in Canada, um, I got a call and somebody outside Fidelity had done the analysis for us. They looked at a thousand products across Canada, equity bonds, balance, etc. And they looked at return to risk over the previous 10 years and who should transform what they were doing into an alternative fund. And Canadian large cap fund came up on top of that list. And so they called us and they said, "You should definitely do this. Um, so we looked at it and we thought that's interesting. but maybe we should do this a bit more wide mm-hmm. because you know we're Fidelity, we think longer term than that. I mean, 10, 15, 20 years, how big can this be? How, where's the opportunity? And so we basically created a fund that has the mentality around large cap, um, but is global and can go long and short. So I can go against the ideas that I think are, are overpriced and I can buy a little bit more of the ideas that I think are, are, are bad ideas. Um, and it's it's been three years. and I. I I want to point out that it's a huge benefit to have a fund that can do that inside of a fund like Global Equity Plus from the the fund holder's perspective, because you're getting a product that has characteristics that are completely different, it diversifies well. It's a great source of alpha, and there's no performance fee on it. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of products out there, there's hundreds of funds out there that do this, and there's a lot of firepower behind this fund, this this 10% sleeve inside of Global Equity Plus. And you get it kind of free in my in my mind based on the meetings
1: that we've had in the past and the way you've talked about companies that you despise you must get a bit of a smile when you think of the fact that you can short businesses now
3: yeah it's it's really been an interesting journey it's it's forced me to look at um, a part of the universe of of investments that i didn't look at before and it's had great benefits Mm -hmm. Um, so when i look at the performance of large cap over three years i think. A big, like a, a, a lot of basis points in there, are due to my looking on the short side of what's happening. And a, a, the best example of that is um, alternative energy and you know the electrification of transportation. When the long-short fund was launched, I looked at all of these new stocks, these new companies that were creating these these cars and, and the multiples they had, and I started looking into lithium and looking at all the new litiga- the, the legislation we had to get rid of. Um, internal combustion engines before 2035. And I just thought, this is absolutely impossible. There's no way we're going to get there. There's not, we won't, there's a lot of lithium around, but I mean, just getting the copper to do all, I mean, it was just, to me, it was all crazy. So it helped me short a lot of these stocks, but it helped me get long oil when oil became um, negative in 2020. So it, it's been very beneficial to have these two sides. I'm not going to lie, it's kind of fun to say you run a hedge fund, mm-hmm. but you know, it's not. You don't sleep that well every night because it's, there's a lot more volatility. Mm-hmm. When you go after these these companies that have, you don't have a prayer of making money ever, but they're being financed because rates are at zero for, for 10 years. Um, you know, you have to survive that volatility, but eventually you get the rewards on the other side. Very good. Uh, Hugo,
1: how mechanically does Global Equity Plus stay a third, a third, a third from
2: an attribution standpoint? So, um, you know, why buy Global Equity Plus, right? It's a fun of fun. And, uh, you know, you could just buy the other products. But Fidelity's known since at least the 80s, at least since the Peter Lynch days, that the average clients make so much less than the compounded rate of return in, in what the fund achieves over 10, 15 20 years. And, you know, we're, we're an emotional animal and, and that's why there's you know, opportunities in the stock market. But these emotions are a weakness to holding a fund for a very long time. So this product was created to keep you and, and really your clients in the game, right? And that's why this automatic rebalancing exists. So mechanically, it's very easy. The way Fidelity did it, um, does it. Every day with inflows, we rebalance to a third, a third, a third, a third. And if for whatever reason, you know, value massively outperforms growth for seven days in a row, we can do a, a hard rebalancing, you know, moving dollars around. And it's so simple, but the reason we, the funds already had a billion dollars after three, four months, I think it's again, it's to keep you and your clients in the game. You have a great client and you've convinced her that, you know, value strategy makes a lot of sense for her. And then after two years, you know, she can't, you know, well, say a value performance. she's really struggling to keep um, a value fund. And with this product, it's great. It's always rebalancing. So, you know, keep keeping your clients, like sometimes we've heard from you that your client, you know, it might be, the conversation might be so tough that, well, if you don't make a change, I'll change advice, right? So um, that's why I think it's the success of Global Equity Plus. It's really simple, daily, daily rebalancing. Um, So you always own a a third of each strategy and it's really about uh, keeping clients in the game, managing emotions, managing volatility. Thank you for that. Uh, Mark, why don't we go to you. Your
1: portfolio right now, is it very focused or is there a breadth to it that you want to discuss?
4: No, it's very focused. Um, uh, There are very few things in the market that I have a lot of conviction in, but the ones I do, I have a lot of conviction in and these narrow, I consider it to be a narrow market. are traditionally good markets for me, where I will be willing to own stocks that look expensive and kind of look scary um, because I have so much belief in the, in the cycle. And I just kind of don't own the rest of the market. Mm. I'd say that I, at the moment I own about four different thematic trades in various ways, shapes and forms, but it's very concentrated. Despite the fact that it lists 160 names in the portfolio, it's not really 160 names. Mm. Um, and that's what always happens in these types of markets.
1: AI being a beef, big
3: focus for you? Clearly.
4: Um, and it really is... Living in San Francisco is, has been a huge edge in the AI trade. Uh, it's given me such tremendous access working at Fidelity. Um, the US team in general, they have a tremendous access. And then actually being local, I have tremendous access. And I've told this story a few times, and many of you may have heard it, but... In February of last year, I attended a conference that was in Hayes Valley that we found out about because one of my colleagues in the office was getting coffee with her friend, and they said, hey, there's a conference on AI, and it's in Hayes Valley. You should come. And so she told me, and so we showed up, and there were like a million people there. ChatGPT had just blown up the week before. You couldn't even get in. It was this tiny little office building. We're all sitting on the floor. And All of these luminaries in AI that you've now all read about over the last 12 months that are all now billionaires that, you know, are flying around and talking at Davos and whatnot, they were all there in T-shirts going, I got this little company. It's kind of cool. And it was just so obvious that it was going to be a huge, huge trade. And I bought a ton of AI stuff. And so that's the local advantage. That's one of the great things about being located where I am for technology. And that AI trade, like, we're on it. We are so on it. And I would bet that there's nobody, certainly nobody in Canada and very few people anywhere in America that know as much about AI right now from an investment standpoint
1: as I do. Jensen Huang from NVIDIA, you have wonderful access. You don't have a leather jacket, but you have access to him? Oh, all the time. All the time. We talk to Jensen
4: probably every three or four months. I'm mm-hmm. sure Will mentioned it. I mean, we have a tremendous access. And then we probably have, have a private team out there. We are talking to all the private companies, all the people developing models. All the people helping to develop models. There's a huge ecosystem of work that nobody's seeing. And it's funny when you surface look at this and you go, well, NVIDIA is so expensive. It's up a lot. Everyone talks about AI, blah, blah, blah. You, just, you can't really imagine how important this is going to be for the next five to ten years. It's like the it's like the internet. It's like the 90s. We're in 1995. Um, it's gonna be a multi-year, multi-crazy. You're already seeing crazy. It's going to get worse tomorrow. So very interesting.
1: Dan, yep. your focus right now in Canadian large cap. I see some non-discretion or consumer non-discretion or discretion non-discretionaries in there,
3: uh, tobacco companies.
1: Talk about the focus that you have within the portfolio.
3: Yeah, I think their AI strategy is fantastic. Uh, <laughs> um, that was uh, quite a transition there, Mike. Um, yeah, I own. Uh, Tobacco stocks that are growing at one to two percent a year.
1: <laughs> Just trying to show the disparity. <laughs> <the disparate.
3: laughs> oh wow, yeah, no, so quite a few of those. I mean, that's 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 what I do. I, I think, frankly, you know, in all seriousness, I think those types of stocks, some of them have been punished pretty hard. So that's why I try to to fish. And when you have a free cash flow of 16, 17, 18 percent, and people have this view that well volumes are going down, therefore, you should never touch a stock like that. And they can price through that uh, volume decrease because everybody's addicted and you get you know revenue growth of two, 3%, 4%. You know, that's enough to compound pretty quickly if, if the multiple ever gets any kind of a whiff of an increase. Um, and, you know, frankly, I think those stocks, some of them have actually worked fairly well. Um, I don't think it's throughout the volatility of the last three years, um, you know, I've been helped a little bit by that tailwind of, in my view. I mean, there's been huge concentration in the stocks that Mark loves, and he's great at finding where that is. Um, I think underneath where all the, you know, all of us who don't run as much money as Mark are, are playing, um, there's there's a lot of value names that are starting to to perk up. I think throughout this volatility, some of these stocks have done fairly well, and if you look at the historical performance of growth versus value, it's been unbelievable. Um, and so I'm not a value guy per se, because I don't think I'd be in this business anymore. But I think there's a lot of cheap names who are going to eventually work out better in this environment where interest rates are significantly higher. mean, it was basically, you know, zero for 10 years. Um, there was, we went from zero to $20 trillion of bonds that had a negative yield. And, and now this environment has changed. So at the margin, there should be a little bit more uplift to some of these stocks, and when fundamentals are actually getting a slightly bit better, uh, so a tiny bit better, then it's a place to be. And so, yeah, I, I think some of them are are going to do fairly well. In the meantime, you're compounding your free cash flow at 15, 16 percent. Mm-hmm. So, GVL, GVLS, uh
1: number one short position is Carvana. Yep. Do you want to talk about that? <laughs> you probably own
3: it. I do. <laughs> <laughs> I don't disagree with your short thesis. There you go. (laughs) I I, I remember last year when I, one of the things I said was like, I'm short Kyra, and you're like, I'm long. You started laughing.
1: (laughs)
2: I'm glad you still talk.
3: (laughs) So I think it's the beauty of combining our three styles. It's that, you know, when you have conviction, it's going to be a big holding for me, maybe long or short, and it's going to be a big holding for him if his conviction is really high on the long side. But look at the performance. Yeah, small. Yeah, I'm sure it's small. (laughs) Look at the performance of, of global equity plus year to date. We have our own styles. We we have our own anal- analytical view of, of things, and we can have something that goes against each other like that. But it's 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 marginal, and again, doesn't disagree with my thesis. And, um, you know, it's a company that's it's a new, it's basically a new um, type of company. It did not really exist that much last cycle, um, and the financing has been getting harder and harder. So basically, you can buy used cars online and they'll help you finance it. And it's, it's you know, its, it's like interface is OK. But at some point, if you can't finance yourself outside of your own company and you need to self-finance by keeping your loans on balance sheet for a while, that tends to tell you, well, things are getting a little bit crunchier. Now, it's a little easier now with the market rebound, the bond markets reopen. Um, but medium to long term, you really have to securitize all of this stuff and the bigger you become you know the more troubling it could be at some point so i think it's an untested business model and um, it's obviously volatile because nobody really knows what it's going to look like three or four years from now whether the, the bond market is going to be open i think i personally think the restructuring of the debt that was done last year was absolutely awful for equity holders now in my view what you have left is more kind of an equity option um, but you know it's a market of stocks and we're allowed to disagree but I think you know as this conviction increases maybe I'll cover my short um, and then vice versa if his you know conviction decreases then I increase my short he sells I mean it's just it's it's a modulating of where our convictions are and I think it's it's a great you know thing to have a product like that where we can we're they're allowing us to do that it sounds weird that he could be long and I could be short on the other side mm-hmm. but I, I think the next three to five years are going to prove that this isn't Really smart product to put together. It's also not a one for one
1: because GVLS, that position, that short position is quite, quite small relative to the whole portfolio. It
3: really is small, relative. So if Mark has a lot of conviction, it's going to overwhelm whatever short position I have for sure. I don't have a lot of conviction. <laughs> uh,
1: Hugo, talk about what your focus is right now in the portfolio. And I know CNR Railway is
2: uh, at number one in your top 10. Yeah, I don't own Carvana, So, uh, yeah. So. That's that's often where I am. I'm right in the middle um, of these uh, two other wonderful PMs. Um, Yeah, I mean, just, you know, from a concurrent perspective, um, you know, companies, and this is not CN specific, but companies, there's always companies get into trouble, industries get into trouble. um, Sometimes the whole market is into trouble. I do own a lot of transport right now. The reason is er, railroading, which is historically a wonderful business, has really suffered the last four or five years in terms of volume. Um, The volumes are down and they haven't rebounded. They lost share during COVID, the trucking. Um, Because of carbon and lower costs, they should be gaining share over time, but it's been the opposite the last three, four years. So the one thing I've been doing is try to look at companies that are already telling you we're in a recession. So, you know, I don't want to, I don't personally don't, I'm not interested in the macro debate, but companies on conference calls are in, in consumer, in transportation, they're already living a recession. The transport's been in recession since two Q4s ago, Q4 2022, when the de-stocking at Walmart and the exporting goods started and Home Depot and everybody else, they've had a tough time. You know, we're, we were talking to a trucking company this week and they're saying it's the worst price action they've ever seen. J.B. Hunt, which is intermodal, will tell you it's the worst price action they've seen since 08, 08 09. And I'm attracted to comments like that. You know, Maybe I'm a little wired differently, but it's, if, it's, if, it's, if, it's, if it's that bad, the next step can hopefully only be good, right? That's how I think. So, so that's why there's so much uh, transportation industrial on the farm is things are already difficult. Over time, they'll lap those difficult quarters. You know, we're in the second derivative business, and I think Mark does this probably better than anybody else. It's not if it's bad. Is it gonna become less bad? And less bad is actually good. Um, so that's how I've been thinking about it. You know, you're trying to buy a wonderful business. For me, there's, there's three conditions, right? Wonderful business, which is high return on invested capital, the ability to continue to deploy capital to high rates of return. It's in the whole. And then can I use duration? Can I use time to my advantage versus our competition? And uh, that's why transports in general have been a big part of the portfolio over the last six six to nine months. So we've established that you kind of fit between as far
1: as style, as far as the companies, the themes that you have, which is very interesting. Mark, let's go back into some other maybe more esoteric stuff, space exploration. You, Mark, uh, uh, Will talked about being down in Texas to see SpaceX. You were there as well. Yes. Tell us about that. It's
4: it's a tremendous facility. Often
1: it really helps
4: to go see these things. So we read a lot about like this fancy nonsense. And until you go and see it, you can't really understand the scale of what's involved. And I find that a lot of investors just stop doing the work on stocks when they get to what they view as expensive. So I, I have this religion, which valuation is stupid and the more we spend time on valuation the less we're doing that makes sense and with these these types of names like a spacex you need to actually go do the work dream the dream a little bit and go what does this thing do and how does it work and and can this work and oh my god if it works what's what what's it going to do transform society so yes went there yes it was mind-blowing you just can't believe what they're doing you almost can't believe that they're allowed to do what they're doing um (laughs) is amazing and they're going to open up space literally open it up and i don't even know what that's going to mean but it is really mind-blowing um so that's that's why you have to do the work that's why you have to go and fly and visit these places that's why you have to have the resources and the access and all the stuff we have and um it's just incredibly valuable
1: Dan, I don't have anything about space to ask you, but uh, I'm curious about arbitrage. That's something that you've utilized in Canadian large cap. Why don't you tell everybody about arbitrage and where it fits in?
3: Yeah, I first basically tipped my toe in there when I was an analyst in civil equity. When I couldn't find anything to buy, I was covering the banks in 07, fourth quarter of 07. I remember just thinking, my God, this is... Because the commercial paper market froze in August of 07. And then the market just kept going up. And I kept going around the floor telling PMs like, Nobody can finance anything. Commercial GE cannot finance itself over 28 days, yet the S&P is going up every day. I don't know why. I guess there must be a reason, but it's kind of interesting. And then I just, I was looking for other ideas that were really protecting the downside. So I bought um, two US banks that were being acquired at the time, one by Royal Bank, actually. Um, So, you know, the idea of arbitrage, it's a company that's being acquired for a fixed price, like $10, but there's still a few hurdles to go through. So the stock's trading at 980. So you can make 20 cents if those things happen. If regulators accept it, the acquirer gets the financing. It closes. You know, you go from 980 to 10 bucks. Low volatility, um, low return. But when rates were zero, that was a pretty good place to be. And now it's still a good place to be because all these spreads have expanded massively. So instead of making, you know, four percent annualized, you can make eight, nine percent annualized because it's spread over five. Because you can buy a T bill that's going to be six months, or you can buy one of those deals. Mm-hmm. So I've been involved with hundreds of those. Um, and it's where I go when I don't have anything better to do. And you know, that's where I was I had a lot of money parked in Q1 of 2020. And you know, March arrived and quickly I sold down these things where the spread had expanded a tiny bit. So they were down one percent to buy stocks that were down 15, 20, 25, 30 percent. So the problem is simply you need the patience. Mm-hmm. to wait for these things to happen and for these prices to hit your level. Um, and I bought a whole bunch of Canadian financials doing just that, selling arbitrage buying Canadian financials in the latter, latter parts of, of 2020. Um, so arbitrage is, is something I don't like to do. I, I would rather never have to mm-hmm. do it. But given my style, it's where I park some money sometimes, hopefully in the short term, as we're waiting for better opportunities. Now, if the market would give me more than one recession every 15 years, you know life would be a little easier, but you know that's not the world we've lived in in the last in a little while.
1: Good segue, I wanna ask you about macro. Hugo told me, don't ask me about macro. I think Mark has recently got a tattoo that says no macro somewhere in his body. We won't get into that.
3: Dan, <laughs>
2: Let's see.
3: are we doomed in 23?
2: You're Is right. GVLS
1: gonna be the,
3: depl- what's happening? Well, if we are doomed, they are gonna be happy that I'm part of the portfolio. I certainly hope we're doomed because <laughs> that would be good for me. But, uh, Look at this. <laughs> no, I think, I think, you know, if mostly now, last year, everybody was expecting a recession. It was tougher to find shorts, frankly, in my long short fund. Now it's way easier because nobody thinks a recession is even possible. So if there's a recession, that's where my job is, comes in. It's where I'm going to be the one protecting that, that downside. And that's going to be my job. And I, I, you know, what's my view? I don't know. I mean, the yield curve has been inverted for 15 months now, historically, that doesn't pretend great things, Uh, but, you know, Jeff said this morning, every company refinanced. so maybe, you know, this time is a little bit different because everybody's fixed their rates for a longer time, mostly in the U.S. And I think, I don't know about two other gentlemen here, but I I tend to agree with Jeff about Canada. I think, you know, those resets are going to be pretty tough for the Canadian consumer, so I'm not afraid to have a little bit of an underweight in Canadian dollar type holdings. Mm Um, if, if, if the currency is involved, um, so I'm a bit more defensive than I would be on average, simply because everybody's on one side of the boat. There's not going to be a recession, and it's it, it's kind of my job to do that part of the of the portfolio and in my own, my, fund, my own funds as well to be a bit more defensive when the market seems to be a bit more exuberant.
2: That's probably one thing we can agree on, right? You're probably underweight Canadian dollar too, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, finally. Yeah. Something oh, yeah. we can all agree on. Isn't that great? We're on yeah. the way to gain dollars. We are. Yeah, we are. Yeah. There we go. Hugo, Canadian
1: financials, thoughts?
2: Uh, me? Yeah. yeah, well, I don't do a lot of them. Um, you sure you don't want to ask Dan? Um, <laughs> He'll be next. Yeah, I mean, historically, I don't do a lot of financials. You got to focus on your circle of trust. A financial that's growing too fast, historically, it's not a good sign. Um, and I just think I agree with, I'll be very brief. I'll agree to a lot of things you've heard today already from Jeff Moore and others. In Canada, unfortunately, with the rate reset, it's just hitting us you know, more than others, right? And I just, I just want to cycle through this moment. We'll be fine in the long run. We're a great uh, place to be. The truth is we're already in a recession per capita in Canada, right? We've been in a recession for maybe at least six, nine months on a per capita basis. Uh, consumption per capita is down, expenditure per capita is down. So I think on the financial side, I'm a little light and I'm just waiting for, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm waiting on the bank specifically for maybe something to happen. Maybe it won't, but I don't think you're really getting paid at this moment in time to take a lot of risks. The one thing that has been good for me the last uh, nine months is, is OnEx, right? People were really down on private equity. Uh, Fundraising is very difficult. But there was positive change at Onyx, but people weren't paying attention. New CEO, right? So stock had underperformed for a very long time. It was very cheap to have. And finally, well, not finally, but you had a positive catalyst into change. You had a change of guard at the CEO. Really been shaking things up um, and making good changes to the organization, Bobby LeBlanc. We've met him, I think, four times since he became uh, CEO. So, you know, sometimes you have a contrarian idea, and then the first time you meet, with the management team, same thing with, was like Chipotle in 2018. It's like, oh my God, like the world's completely changed, and it's actually thesis affirming. So even though the stock's up, you want to buy more. So I think even within financials, which I'm not too hot on, you know, you can always find one or two opportunities. So Onyx for me <clears throat> was one that's really helped the last twelve months. Interesting. Do you want to add to that, Dan?
3: yeah I mean similarly like uh, Fairfax been kind of it's it's kind of the idea of we keep turning the rocks, we keep going back to the stories we analyze everything and, and when it's cheap enough, you just you get in there and yeah the the thesis gets better and better, so yes, it's gotten more expensive on price to book but if if the fundamentals are there and it's still fairly cheap relative to history, then you know you you have you're winning from from all sides so mm-hmm. that you know we're, we're probably all of us underweight Canadian banks, I would think um and I'm—I don't own any insurers, but there's always ideas everywhere. You just gotta keep gotta keep looking, and um, you'll find them if you're looking hard enough.
1: Mark, nuclear energy is of interest to you
3: now. Mm-hmm. Talk more about that. It's actually been of interest to me for a while.
4: Um, I've owned it for over a year now, and it was one of those things where, uh, sort of like Dan, when he was shorting all those science projects, you know, things. Um, the more you look at the climate problem we have, the, the more it just looks like nuclear seems as if it's the only viable near term solution to what is going to be astronomical power demand. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if we want to electrify and move away from gas and, and oil, and it's not going to be fast, and I'm not like saying we're overnight, we're going to get rid of it all, you, you need a lot of electrical power. And I now know from my work in AI that these AI data centers take 10 times the amount of power as a traditional data center. And the single biggest limiting factor to building capacity is not GPUs, it's finding power. Nobody can find power. We need lots and lots of electrical power. So it just seems as though here we got a 55, 60 year old solution, it's green. These things run forever, it's proven. We should just be building some more nukes. You don't need to build that many more to meet the demand needs. So it seems like a pretty obvious answer and governments have come there finally and they're hitting at the same time there's a really creaky supply chain because nobody's wanted to do anything in nuclear for since Fukushima happened. So there's no supply of anything nuclear. You can't build them, there's no parts, there's no uranium. Mm-hmm. At the same time you have demand just coming like a freight train. And it's interesting. Like we, we talked to some of these AI data center people and they're actually out there kicking tires on nuclear facilities. Mm-hmm. Like, it's, I'm not just making stuff up here. They actually need giant baseload power, and these things are the best source. You can't use solar and wind. Um, you're not going to use your gas peaker plants because the environmental lobby is so strong. So nuclear looks great. Um, like, And you can even pencil out, like, enormous earnings potential for some of these nuclear plates. It's not like it's just pie in the sky. It's not like... It's fairy dust, it's earnings, cash flow, stuff that drives stocks. I don't know. I don't see a solution other than nuclear and the world just keeps getting hotter and the hotter it gets, the more we're going to need it. If someone invents a better solution, great. But I don't know. It looks like it looks like the single best idea in Canada when I look across the Canadian market in terms of if you're looking for a long run potential multi-bagger story,
1: that's the one for
4: me. Um, I see no other way out.
1: And the Montreal power grid is going to be taxed even more when Hugo gets his Cybertruck, <laughs> <laughs> which is on order on its way. Homebuilders too, you're interested in.
4: So, so yes, and that's why I own Carvana, which is, it's kind of a rate trade. Um, my view was that rates have peaked and when rates start to come down, it's good for interest sensitive stocks and homebuilders. Actually, they're better than, they're way better than Carvana. Carvana was like a, this is like a rake trade, and I'm not gonna hold that thing forever. But um, home builders are great because we're in a, a structural shortage in America. There's just not enough houses, and we have so many barriers to entry now to building a house. It used to be, you'd find a big old open space of land, you'd permit the thing, you'd build a bunch of houses, and away you go, it was a terrible business. Well, now you can't permit anything because the environmental permits are crazy. Um, You can't get power. Remember the power comment? There's no power anywhere. So you can't get power for your little subdivision. You got all these government officials in the way. So what does that mean? That's called barriers to entry in our language. There's incredible barriers to entry to building homes, incredible barriers to entry in America. So the companies that are incumbents have an advantage and they are not priced like they have an advantage. They're priced like the old style home builders. So you kind of win two ways. The market's eventually gonna price home builders like structural growth stocks, with huge multiples, and you have rates coming down. I think it's a great sort of contrarian bet. Something that Hugo might be even interested in. And they're hated internally. Like it, it that the we hate them internally. Our analysts have had fours on them for ever because um, they're too expensive.
1: No, so I think it's a great trade. Uh, as far as meetings, Will talked about and we talked about when, when we were discussing the, the, earlier this afternoon about open access to any company that comes to see us, certainly any company that go, you go to visit. And then from a research standpoint, do two or three of you ever attend meetings together to offer up your different opinions to kind of challenge the companies that you could meet with? Have you attended meetings together? Is it been, wow, um, <clears throat> we're not allowed to attend meetings together. So that's the yeah, that's <laughs> the US side of it. So Dan and, and Hugo. Yeah. You know. yeah.
2: Well, I think holistically, you know, we might be chasing different things at different time, right? Like yeah. Mark um, Will talked about it earlier that sometimes we're double booked all the time. Mm-hmm. We're triple booked sometimes, mm-hmm. right? And that's why we have a great team of analysts to help out and You know, you just got to you just got to go to the thing that makes the most sense for you in that moment of time. And Fidelity is a little bit like uh, drinking through a fire hose. And you just I think with time and experience, you you learn to focus where you need to spend your attention. I think that's really important, especially with our different styles. So Fidelity, you'll walk in one day and there's like a million (coughs) meetings during the day. And well, which one are you going to attend to? And we might not be the same one but even if we're double like today right like we're i'm missing a meeting because i'm on stage but s- some people at fidelity are doing the work you can catch up right after so and you know we were in the green room, green room waiting all day and there was uh, you know there's an ipo going on there's somebody selling a stock that i own so do you want to buy more so we have all these amazing resources and um, so, yeah, we don't need to be at the same meeting all the time. We just need to chase what's the most important thing for us.
1: There's a question that came in about deliberating security choice, but I, I think in this case, because these are three portfolios that are combined into Global Equity Plus, it's not an issue of you debating what goes into it. So we'll move on from that. Um, but what about foreign content? It is What would it be at now? And is there, like, what's, what's your thoughts on Canadian large cap? Because you can go up to half of it
3: in foreign, where would you be right now? Well, it's just a combination of, of all the products, right? Large cap is basically 50-50. Oh. Uh, global value long short is 95% mm-hmm. global. Um, Mark, you're probably 95% plus as well. And mm-hmm. goes 50-50.
2: Yeah, I think um, we're all canada light, right? I mean, it's just, look again, you know, we're all uh, Canadians and go Canada, but in the moment in time, this, this historical rise in rate just more of a headwind to our country so you know as much as during covid stocks like sleep country and keen tire and we're amazing we're just a little bit waiting and see how this how we how things settle so i think you know you can do stock picking in the us there's cheap stocks in 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 europe i bought japanese stocks for the first time in a super long time you know there you can do you can do different things while we wait to bring back the money. And, you know, the, especially in large cap in greater Canada, there are these mandates that if we want to, we can go 100% Canadian. So um, we're just kind of waiting for for the right moment to do, uh, maybe not 100%, but certainly to increase gain content. Yeah.
3: Just on a quick math, it should be around a third right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, But that's going to move around. It might go up it might go down a little bit. Mm-hmm.
1: Mark, how about private companies? You've talked a lot about private companies and portfolios that you've run in the past. Global innovators, are you in privates now?
4: Yeah, I have about 3% of the portfolio in privates as we speak. Um, And I haven't added a whole lot to the private portfolio. We've done some refinancing so privates we invested in lower because, you know, their business wasn't as good as we hoped it was. And then we've been doing some investing in AI companies selectively. It's really hard to pick the winners right now, so I don't really want to go chase any sort of AI wonder story at the moment. Um, but yeah, three, three and a half percent of the portfolio is currently in private.
1: It's interesting because when you think of it, you've got private access, you've got uh, alternatives, um, and we've got arbitrage as well. So it's, it's a core portfolio, but it's also got these maybe more esoteric com- components, which is a very interesting uh, addition. Um, Hugo, would you buy Global Equity Plus? <laughs>
2: if you're not buying Greater Canada, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can't emphasize enough the rebalancing. It's a structural headwind, to people, Canadians getting ahead on trading funds. Look at the huge success Marcus had since he became a PM in 2007. How many people have owned special situations for 17 years, There's 16 and a half, earlier, Right, right? <laughs> Right? That's the answer. Supposed to hold the funds for a very long time. And that's why we have Global Equity Plus to help manage emotions and keep people in the game.
1: There's a tremendous amount that goes behind all of this as we've been talking about. Not only these great minds, but all that's behind the scene and rebalancing and and these little areas as well that are really more esoteric. Um, There's a lot that comes to you with one line on the statement, that's Global Equity Plus. These three gentlemen, thank you all for being here today. This was wonderful. Thank you.
0: thank you. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity Mutual Funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca/how-to-buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time. funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently, and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments.